todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today I have a co-host, Marco Manone, author of the short story, Hell A Woman, which appears in volume one of the book series, Along Comes Scary, the 60s edition of the Rock and Roll Nightmares. Hello, Marco. Hi, Stacey. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back. Always a pleasure. Well, your, your short story, Hell A Woman, presents an extremely intriguing theory about how the 27 Club started, which is rock stars who died at the age of 27. It's kind of a thing. Um, your story is occult related, which really ties in well with today's guest. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what made you decide to take that route? Yeah, I just, I think there's always been a, not only a fascination with the 27 Club curse, but I feel like there's definitely a sense of, of something uh, supernatural or, or mystical uh, that is associated with it. It just seems like too big of a, of a mathematical coincidence that all of these amazing rock musicians all died at that exact age. So, um, once I started playing with that idea, then yes, uh, the, the, um, elements of, of Satanism and, uh, occult rituals to, to conjure something, uh, that caused this became to me, it felt like kind of a very obvious choice. Um, well, since then, you've published um, another short story on the fiendish hell of a Starbucks, <laughs> which is kind of like uh, the ninth circle of Starbucks, I guess. Um, and your your new release is poised perfectly to align with the new Nicolas Cage movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. So can you tell us a little bit about both of those? Uh, yeah, the great pumpkin spice slaughter uh, is as um, crazy and weird as it sounds. It's a short story um, available on Amazon. And basically the inspiration for it just came from, you know, living through yet another pumpkin spice latte season, which has become such a cultural um, kind of zeitgeisty influence that you can't escape it. And it, it becomes, you know, it gets earlier and earlier every year. It starts in like at the end of August now. 
So the way that this corporation has been able to sort of alter our seasons and our perception of the seasons um, and, you know, just sort of the, the addictive consumerism angle just made me think, well, what if, you know, what if when people drank these, they actually turned into these violent raving lunatics and it, it began the collapse of society as we know it. So that was sort of the, <laughs> the idea and it was a lot of fun to write. And then your novella? Yes, uh, The Haunting of Nicolas Cage uh, is, uh, is an idea that is uh, as surreal and fantastical as it is. It's actually based in a lot of research and a lot of um, real life personal details uh, from Nicolas Cage, like the fact that he on purpose bought the most haunted property in all of New Orleans because he wanted to write a horror novel. And he thought, what better place to write a horror novel than the infamous... Uh, Oh shoot! How do we pronounce it? Lalari. 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 I believe it is, but I'm not sure. It's that haunted mansion in New Orleans, the very famous and haunted spot. Yeah, I thought I knew how to pronounce it perfectly until we spoke earlier, and then I was like, "Wait, maybe I don't." But yeah. um, no, it, it's uh, so he lived there in, for real for uh, off and on for a couple of years. So my my novella just sort of plays with the notion of well, what happened if it was actually really haunted and he was trapped in it. Um, you know, so that was the, that was the setup. What were some of the more unusual things that Nicolas Cage has done throughout the years that inspired you? And did you learn anything new about his predilections when you were doing the research for this? Yeah. I mean, I just, I've always been a fan of his, but the more interviews that I'd, I'd read and, and seen of him over the years, the more bizarre and, and interesting he, he became, um, you know, he, he purchased a real, dinosaur skull uh, like a, a it's a tarbosaurus batar but it looks like a t-rex but it's, it's so it's huge and it cost a lot of money and uh he also had these albino king cobras uh, he had a bunch of snakes and he actually had a two-headed snake at one point uh so I, I played with that and um and what else oh yeah he had a, a there was a stalker someone who intruded uh in the middle of the night it was a very scary situation for him and his family but this was a it was a naked man who was uh, sucking on a fudgesicle. And oh, wow. you know, it's like only Nicolas Cage, right? It's like, right. he just has such an interesting, colorful life. So I just did as much research as possible and tried to incorporate some of those details, including this pyramid tomb that he has in New Orleans that he's very uh, kind of ambiguous about. He doesn't like talking about it, but it's like this very strange pyramid tomb that is where he will spend his eternity. So if you read my novella, it kind of, connects all these dots and sort of explains uh, some of the mysteries. That's The Haunting of Nicolas Cage, and it's on Amazon in paperback and Kindle? It, it is on uh, paperback only currently. Oh, all right. Very old school, but it will be available on Kindle eventually. But uh, yeah, it's on Amazon. Very nice. And so um, where can fans follow you on social media, Marco? Yeah, on Twitter, uh, Marco Manone, uh, M-A-N-N-O-N-E. And on Instagram, it's Marco underscore macabre. Those are my, those are my main socials. All right. Um, so, well, let's get our guest on the line, because as I said, there's a little tie-in with the occult and the 27 Club and all this. Oh, for sure. Truth is always stranger than fiction. Our guest today is the author of Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, Peter Biebergel. From the Beatles to Black Sabbath, this fascinating book shows how the marriage between mysticism and music changed the world. 
Hello, Peter, and welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Hello. Thank you both for having me, really. Hi, Peter. Excited to be here. Uh, as I mentioned Black Sabbath a second ago, you, you mentioned in your book how they at first denied their name had anything to do with Satan, and then they embraced that as a marketing tool. So how many bands or musicians would you say actually were into the occult in the 60s and 70s? It's a good question, but I think we have to think about it as like a spectrum. There's, you know, a lot of these young musicians um, feeling, and rightly so, what they're doing is sort of, you know, rebellious at its core, sort of pushing up against the mainstream of what's acceptable. And it seems to me that you would sort of reach for um, sort of a spiritual identity that feels like it's aligned with that, right? So anything that also feels kind of dangerous or uh, potentially a threat to, you know, middle-class America is going to feel empowering. Whether or not you actually practice magic or cast spells, I think it was just sort of a, um, you know, and more than just aesthetics sometimes, but you know, just a way of thinking about yourself in the world as kind of a dangerous creature, right? And so um, you can look at bands like Black Sabbath, who I think if you really look at their early lyrics, they're completely moralizing folks, right? There's, I mean, Satan laughing spreads his wings is, the, is a bad thing that happens, right? Because of the warmongering. So there's sort of that element. But I think that as, you know, they, but yet at the same time, their first, the cover of their first album, the self-titled Black Sabbath, is very much uh, evocative of kind of a, a strange, you know, occult figure uh, there in the, you know, in, in the in the rural area there. So I think there's definitely a, a play on both um, who you are outside of, of and, and and the persona of the musician. And, and I don't think that it's a put on, I don't think it's a contrivance necessarily, because I think magic, if it's real, is actually happening in that performative place, right? Um, so Ozzy would go on to sort of take on that persona a lot more, because I think he saw one, yeah, I mean, cynically speaking, it sells music, sells albums. But also, I do think that there's, again, a way in which you yourself might just feel connected to that kind of sensibility, right? And so, like, later, Ozzy, you know, when he was doing his solo stuff, if you look at some of the concert footage, you could see, you know, he would be, like, on the throne with the floating flames, and he would come down, and he'd have his upside, you know, the staff with the upside-down cross and the robe and this whole thing. And, and I think that what's happening there is you're creating a, you know, almost like a shamanic space, right? Where you and the audience are kind of participating in this myth-making and that's magic, right? Like you don't have to, again, it doesn't, I think magic more often is happening in that connection. And when you, when you dress it up in these sort of the glamors of the occult, um, I mean, that's a lot of what occult practices anyways, right? If you look at sort of, um, you know, the history of, of Western magic and you look at something like uh, the, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, right? Which was a ritual magical organization, ceremonial magical organization at the turn of the century. 
um, so much of what propelled the sort of magical consciousness was the costumes and the incense and the colors and the the you know the ritual elements are what so what that can happen on stage as well, but certainly alongside that is the marketing people and the you know the the execs they want that kind of cheeky we're not but we are because when you create that kind of controversy um again it, it's going to go a long way to uh you know creating again this sense of danger and i think that was also very attractive to say the teenager who wants everything about their life to feel like it's it's dangerous and anti-suburban and you know uh, a threat to sort of the christian mainstream and so just throwing horns becomes a signal for something that could feel when you're 16 17 years old incredibly powerful and so what's interesting about thinking about the occult and rock and roll is that it really is a spectrum of the band, the music, the sound, the album covers themselves, the stage performance, but also the, the way in which it's transmitted and the way in which the audience perceives it and what they do and how they might turn it inside out and maybe make it more than it is. The whole thing about backward masking and, and playing songs backwards, maybe a few bands did that again as kind of a, playing on the fear of it but i don't personally believe anybody was trying to send secret messages from their satanic masters you know through to the masses right it's an interesting thing too where you say like um you know is he or isn't he kind of thing with the, the also the playing with gender identities in the early 70s like Bowie absolutely and, you know he never really confirmed or denied um and then the first openly gay glam rocker or one of the first joe bryeth you know he just his career failed spectacularly when he said he was gay for sure so you're right. right i mean that's kind of the mystique that they built um now rather than focusing on the bands and the musicians themselves. Um, the book of your book, Season of the Witch, kind of puts the spotlight on the origins of those occult beliefs and their evangelists. So I felt like it was more scholarly than sensational and wondered why you decided to go that route with the book. Well, I mean, I think part of it is, is a result of actually doing the research, right? Like you have this idea, I want to write this book about the cult of rock and roll, and then you start digging in and you realize, gosh, so much of this, first of all, is just anything that seems sensational is really rumor or, you know, it's the same as Paul is dead, right? It just is part of like these memes that were happening around and, and how the band would sort of play with that. But who was practicing the occult? Who, who actually um, was selling their allegiance to Satan. I mean, when you really break it all down, it doesn't look like any of that's actually happening. What's actually happening is there are these, uh, there's a history of these symbols and practices and ideas that have always inspired artists and musicians who themselves believe that what they were doing was somehow, um, you know, pushing again, pushing up against normative ways of thinking about art or music. 
we can go back to look at some of the great uh, modern classical composers uh, like Satie and Ravel. These guys were all theosophists, so they belong to Rosicrucian organizations, you know, because again, the those spiritual ideas were would neatly mesh with the kinds of art and music that they were producing because it didn't fit into what might be considered um, acceptable in, in that regard. You know, you're already challenging things. And, and the other thing that's important about the occult in thinking about art and artists and musicians is that at its core, especially in the Western traditions, the occult practices are very much about the individual being in charge of their own kind of spiritual destiny, right? There's no priest, there's no rabbi, it's you creating a ritual space so that you can encounter the gods or God directly. And so if you are also a musician who's trying to work outside of like a particular school of thought and wants to also be your own, you know, be be your own agency of change, right? It, it, it just aligns perfectly. But then there's also the really interesting things I discovered about, you know, the ways in which this idea of even the devil in rock and roll is something that can be traced all the way back to the feelings that the Christian um, leaders and culture, their fears about black music mm. and how um, like slaves, for example, who were certainly Christian and, and even though many were converted by force as it were, still saw that there was a hopefulness in this idea of redemption for their lives. And they would go to church or be taught sort of Christianity in the way that they had, you know, in the way that was thought to be what they should have. But many slaves worshiped in their own ways secretly, often using methods that would have been seen as primitive or barbaric by the church, bringing with them some of the ideas that were part of their African uh, religious traditions. And so anything that's not Christian has to be of the devil. And that, that's right, that's the one-to-one. -one. And so you start to see how music that isn't prescribed is already starting to be seen as something that potentially is something born of, of Satan or something born of evil. And that begins to be something that starts to play into that culture's own mythology about their own music. And so the gods sort of start to take on different names. So what might've been an African deity known as Legba, which was a crossroads God, the God you would meet at the crossroads, a messenger, like a trickster God, becomes the devil at the crossroads that supposedly taught Robert Johnson how to play the guitar. But the, but the point is, is that's an old story it had nothing to do with the devil or Christianity hmm. until those things start to become synthesized because those blues musicians themselves were Christian. So all of this just gets kind of repackaged in a way uh, to make sense for where you, where, who you are, 
where you're living and the culture that you're in. But you can still unpack them and you can really start to see that at the root of it seems to me the beginnings of the spirit of rock and roll, which draws comes out of gospel, comes out of the Pentecostal church, comes out of the blues, is something that is deeply tied into these pre-Christian, non-Christian uh, ways of, of, of worshiping. And so, and, and because inherent in that, just like the slaves who, were, who, who had their own secret worship, it was an act of rebellion. So you add the act of rebellion along with this, it becomes even more dangerous. And then I think, you know, whether or not any of that's conscious, I don't know. But I do know that by the time you get into the 60s and you are a musician who's starting again to um, not play teeny bopper rock and roll and you're taking acid and you're changing the entire shape of popular music, again, it only makes sense that you would also be attracted to spiritual ideas that, that seem to um, fit within that. So I think what I saw, I saw something that was much more subtle rather than sensational. It's not to say that people did later play off what was sensational to make money or even because maybe they believe it. I mean, you get into some really dark places, right, with um, some of the uh, like Norwegian black metal stuff where people start to really take on some of this stuff in a way that both acts as an FU to the system. Um, but also then become something that can become really ugly as well. But then at the same time, you have somebody like, you know, David Bowie, who I think really maybe believed in magic, believed in these ideas. Did Bowie cast spells? I don't think so. I mean, he did do some weird things when he was super paranoid on cocaine. You know, did he have a regular ritual practice? I don't know but I do know that the music and the shape of the music and the performance of the music becomes a practice of magic, right? It becomes a way of looking at the original, you know, Aleister Crowley's definition of magic is, magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in the world according to will. And what else is David Bowie's music? But absolutely causing change, like a real change in the world occurs through will. Um, and so I think that that's where to really look at it, I wanted to sort of try to get outside of just the rumor mill, which is fun. And there's a lot of neat stuff about that. But to... Um, look at how is it that even kind of thing would come about? What is it about our response to occult ideas that makes us scared, that makes us hyper-vigilant about these things? Um, when Madonna staged her, I think it was 2014 Super Bowl where she uh, did the halftime show and she came out in full esoteric regalia on a throne being carried by sort of like the slate you know the servants and had her um crown looks like just something right out of a right out of the empress tarot card and 
knows exactly what she's signaling because she understands the power of, of those symbols and those ideas. But the very next day were the blog posts about Madonna, New World, Satanic Order. This is all being driven by the conspiracy embedded in the music industry, you know, subliminal messaging and all of that. And I don't think she minded that that's what people had to say about it because that's all part of the performance also, right, is the way in which it's all received. So sort of a long answer to the question, but essentially I found that this kind of investigation was a lot more interesting ultimately um, than just telling the tales of did Ozzy bite the head off of a bat, you know? Which is still a good story, but yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of sensational characters in your book, you go into great detail about Arthur Brown. He's not as well known these days. So, what is it about him that made you choose to devote a chapter to him? I think I was also, you know, I I didn't know much about him either until I started doing the research, and then after reading about him and doing an interview with him to come to find out that he himself believed that what he was doing was a shamanic experience. He wanted his music and his performances to actually do that kind of uh, altered consciousness work that the shaman would do, right, to the, to the, to the community. And when you start to see some of the things that he was doing early on, with costumes, with uh, props, you could start to see the impact he was going to have on other musicians later and how that just became a normal part of the things that you would do. Um, you know, in the same way that the light shows of the Pink Floyd stuff at the UFO club would become staples to a contem more contemporary rock and roll show. I think he had a lot more influence. I mean, of course, he had a huge influence on bands like Kiss and Alice Cooper, but he said to me something about how he, he found that um, he was disappointed that they were using the tools that he had sort of laid before them, but were doing it to sing schools out for summer. Like they were, they were missing the point of the, of what they had access to, you know, to have an audience, to be able to use costume and drama and light in this way um, for something that was just so banal. So I just found that, you know, he was, he was somebody who, he was an occult musician in every sense of the word in the way that we like to say that Ozzy Osbourne was, but maybe not as much as actually when you look at somebody like Arthur Brown. Mm. Yeah, he was quite a character. And another one that I want to talk about is, Jimmy Page, who's probably one of the more well-known um, occult-affiliated musicians. And um, first of all, thank you for pronouncing Alistair Crowley's last name correctly. You're one of the few people, because <laughs> I think Ozzy ruined it for everybody with his song, yeah. Mr. Crowley, but it's really right, Crowley. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, you know, even 50 years on, people are still talking about Jimmy Page and his fascination with the occult. Um, but other musicians of the time, like Angus Young of AC ACDC, wore like the full-on 
devil horns on their album covers and everything, but Paige never really did anything like that. So can you no. tell me what some of the conclusions you drew about him in your research? Yeah, I mean, I think similarly to somebody, I mean, I think we can look at, first of all, Led Zeppelin as a, as a piece. I think that they also represent something that, I was talking to somebody about this today, which is that there's no way you could do what they did now and not look like you were, it was a put on or you're being ironic. I mean, you look at and talk about, like, was there anybody both more masculine and more um, and more binary than Jimmy, than, um, than Robert Plant? Oh, incredible. So, you know, but, and so again, I think what you have there is you have something that's happening more below the surface and its impact is in the way in which it basically changed rock and roll more than it's about casting spells. It's about Jimmy Page fascinated with this character Crowley, who he saw as the great libertine rebel who used magic as a tool to change his own reality. And that's all Led Zeppelin was doing, right? So again, it's, it's we think of magic you know, the magic of Aleister Crowley, for example, is, you know, three-hour ritual, complicated, diagrammatic things on the floor and costumes. And it's, it's not, um, it's certainly not devil worship, although Crowley himself liked the press around that, just like these musicians did so again there's also that sort of similar sensibility about you know uh challenging victorian sensibilities with sex and drugs and now we just add rock and roll to the mix and you have it so i think jimmy page though was very inspired by the idea of you know here's this young guy working class fellow rich now beyond imagining has access to anything he wants. Why not go and um, bid on extremely rare cult books, you know, by Crowley and buy Bolskin House? You know, why not? And because I think he wasn't literally, you know, in, in very real ways inspired by the person of Crowley. I don't know if Jimmy Page ever practiced magic I just don't know. There's no necessarily evidence of that. He never talked about it that way. He only ever talked about Crowley as the person who he felt, whose message he felt was valuable to the world, which is why they etched the uh, missive of do, uh, do Without Will in Led Zeppelin Three, right? In the yeah, that was um, a great story in the book. I didn't, um, I didn't know who who had done that, so it was really interesting. Yeah, found the yeah, person fascinating who, story. Yeah, and so again, that was something that was more about him feeling that this was something he wanted to kind of engrave, you know, both on the album but on the culture when people listened to it. But if you look at Led Zeppelin's so songs, I mean, they're about Tolkien. Yeah. I think there's two songs, if that, that mention the devil. 
in in Zeppelin. There's no devil. Um, there's no like you said. There's compared to like ACDC. There's no um, demonic symbols. It's just nothing like that. There's their own mythology with the Zoso and all the things that they created in the album covers. I mean, I think an album cover like Presences, for example, that creeped me out more than anything when I was a kid, more than an ACDC cover did. Right. You know, with the, with the weird. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that I think adds a, an element of that sort of, of, of that mysterious, potentially sinister well, and I do think that Zeppelin and some of their some of their songs and I think Page's guitar playing had a kind of sinister quality to it, which makes it very, again, very exciting. And so, yeah, I mean, he's a really good example of, I think, somebody who saw in the occult and in Crowley specifically a template for thinking about how to be in the world and what your art should do in the world and the kind of change and impact it should have. And so in that way, it is almost like, again, he was more of a magician than somebody who puts the upside down pentagram on their album cover because it looks cool, right? Um, so I, I, the thing about Paige though too, is when he would ask about it, he, yeah, he would always, talk out of both sides of his mouth about it. I remember later he did a, I think I mentioned this in the book, he did an interview with Rolling Stone and somebody said, so tell us about your interest in Crowley. And now he's, you know, he's not in Led Zeppelin more. He says, how come nobody, nobody ever asked me about my interest in pre-Raphaelite painters? Why does everybody only want to talk about my interest in Crowley? And this part of me thought, well, it's your, you, that's a monster you made. You're the one who talked about time right but right. i do think that at some point he was like look this is it's just something that's part of my whole thing things i love and things that have inspired me and things that i'm impacted by and that to me feels in some ways almost more authentic than that some of the things that you might see that again that are, are more you know in your face right. that are just about getting the uh, getting the making the effect in uh, preparing for this conversation, I read a review of your book on NPR that contained, I think, some of the best criticism an author could ever hope for, which was that your book was too short. They wish that, <laughs> that you'd covered more bands. And so I'm curious, like, how did you, given the huge variety you had to work with, um, how did you narrow down and choose to focus on the bands that you, you did cover in this book? Yeah, it's a good question because there's a lot of bands I, I've given talks where people always want to know, why didn't I mention their favorite band? I'll mention Blue Oyster Cult, and I keep getting gruff for that, you know, for whatever reason. I think, first of all, you know, I didn't want this to just be an encyclopedia of every band that's ever mentioned the devil or had an occult image on their album. cover. I mean, it's just too much. So what I wanted to find were those musicians that just felt representative of an era or representative of a, a sensibility. So like the thinking about the devil in rock and roll specifically, as opposed to, you know, I mean, there's the, the I mean, I think 
culturally, we always attach Crowley to the devil, but I think that they're two completely separate things. And I think that even when we th- talk about like the devil and rock and roll, it's really when we start to look at bands like Black Widow and Coven that we really start to see stuff that's more like this direct nod, you know, to something like that. Um, and so, so yeah, so trying to just be representative. I mean, there are those that, you know, you have to talk about Black Sabbath, you have to talk about Zeppelin, Bowie. Bowie for me stands out as the true alchemist of rock and roll in, in all the ways, both in his able to transform himself, his own sort of uh, mental break by maybe what I've often said is, you know, uh, a, a dangerous mix of cocaine and Kabbalah. <laughs> and so, and then just sort of following that along rather than again, just listing bands, it would have been too much. And I, I wouldn't have been able to have gotten into depth, I don't think with really telling some of these anecdotes that I think tell us more ultimately about uh, the occult's influence or impact on on the music and the culture. Well, you do go into the impact of um, some of the album cover art and some of the dark artists that contributed their work or whose work was appropriated for album covers, like um, some of the releases from ELP, which are really cool. Um, What are some of your favorite album covers? Um, I love, I do love the ones that are really like out I love the Coven album cover with the skull. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Um, I love the album cover to the first Black Sabbath album. One of the most evocative covers. I really like, I wouldn't call it devilish at all, but Houses of the Holy with the kids on the rocks. And then when you open it up and the guy on top of the mountains with the guitar. Uh, uh, I mean, not the tower, the, that's kind of an amazing a sacrifice. Yeah. yeah, that's a great cover. But then more like modern, like I really love, um, I think one of the most frightening album covers is, uh, have you ever seen Sun O's, not Sun O's, Sun's album cover, the Grim Robe demos? Uh-uh, I'll have to look Take, that one up. It, it's really creepy. I don't know what it is about that. I mean, Sun's whole affect too, like they figured it out. They figured out how exactly to just pull in all of the performative elements with the robes, the smoke, and it's supercharged, right? It's so, there's a lot of bands I think that were very good at and still are very good at sort of playing with some of those tropes and again, I think it's less about belief and more about the ways in which magic happens in that performative space. But that's where you're really changing consciousness. The, the allure of the occult doesn't seem as prevalent in the music industry these days. And I'm wondering from your perspective, do you think that, do you think that it still influences popular musicians today and they're just more subliminal about it or do you think that its overall interest has kind of waned in more recent years i think it's waned a little bit but you have to follow i mean the trajectory of popular music is so different I mean, especially with the rise of hip-hop and rap as being really like the dominant pop music form 
I think if you look at a lot of hip hop rap musicians, though, you see other forms of these kind of alternative spiritual ideas. Obviously, there's a lot of Afrofuturism. There's a lot of uh, bands that are um, part of like uh, five percenters, you know, about like the five percenters, which is sort of an offshoot of the, um, the Nation of Islam which is a kind of very strange esoteric belief system. So I think, you know, you have some of that. With rock and roll musicians, I think there's a great, there's, there's a great tradition now, I wouldn't call it tradition, but, you know, just uh, genre of like stoner metal that still love playing with all of these, with all of these ideas and imagery. There's some really terrific, there's a wonderful band called Blood Ceremony with a flute player. I mean, they just nail it really good. There was a band called Person, P-U-R-S-O-N, for a while. There's actually two bands that are, well, there's one band called uh, Sabbath Assembly that does music based on the Process Church, which was that 60s cult. the, um, and then there's a band called um, is it Twin Temple, maybe. And then there's um, there's also some Scandinavian bands. There's a band called Highlong, I think they're called, and they do full Scandinavian shamanic dress and ritual stuff on stage, which really. But yeah, in terms of like your mainstream pop music, I don't think it 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 has the same usefulness. However, we are living in a time right now where there are more people identifying, say, as witches than maybe ever. And maybe it's just because there's more opportunity to create communities online around those kinds of things. Um, but there was even a... Um, there was even at the right after Trump was elected, and there was the um, the women's march. There was uh, a group that were witches, you know, as a as a also both as a political but also as a as a religious identity. Okay, so they're still out there if we if we look. Um, yeah, yeah, but so certainly we- to your point, it's not in the way that you know every other album cover is you know, somebody with a throwing horns or looking right. like, the, you know, any of that. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Not, It also seems it. like, like these days, it seems like the rumors more often involve things like the Illuminati, right? Absolutely. That's exactly right. That yeah. seems like maybe that's like the new version of. That's a new, and it's, it's more driven by conspiracy ideas than it is about occult. I mean, the occult, stuff always created the potential for conspiracy theories. But now what you have is you have, you know, people actually, you know, going like this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To yeah. demonstrate again, it's a signal. <laughs> do they mean it? Do they don't mean it? It kind of doesn't matter because it's the power is in that thing. Right. Yeah. It's that same coyness and, and uh, mystery. So, but uh, your book is not a mystery. Anyone can find it. It's um, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. Um, Where can fans find the book and follow you online, Peter? 
um, you should be able to, if you you should be able to get the book at wherever you buy books. Um, if, if it's a local store, they can certainly order it. Um, Bookshop is a great independent um, uh, book online bookseller. And so any of those uh, normal uh, online venues. All right. Well, thank you, Peter. We really appreciate having you on the show and learned a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Super fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. This is an excerpt from Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories, Volume 1. The chapter is Highway to Hell. The Who's resident wild man, Keith Moon, was the kind of guy who needed to be seated behind a drum kit, not the wheel of a moving vehicle. He'd already proven that he was a dangerous driver on his 21st birthday at the Holiday Inn when he drove his car into the swimming pool. The logical solution? A chauffeur, of course. But that plan didn't hold when Moon ran over said chauffeur while trying to get away from a mob of murderous skinheads. The story starts as it often does with Moon the Loon at the pub. On January 4th, 1970, Keith and his entourage, chauffeur driven by Neil Boland, age 24, rolled up in an ostentatious Rolls Bentley to attend the opening gala of the Red Lion Pub in Hatfield. The drummer made his appearance as a favor to a friend without taking into consideration that the working-class hooligans might take offense to his flashy wheels and apparent wealth. They did. The nail in the coffin was reportedly the expensive brandy Moon ordered. In a beer-based place like that, it only made him look like a snob. After Moon and his posse were chased out of the Red Lion, they cowered in the car as the angry mob pelted it with stones and coins, rocking it back and forth to prevent them from leaving. When Boland, who was also employed as a bodyguard, exited the vehicle to confront the unruly upstarts, Moon slid into the driver's seat and gunned it. The car accelerated, not only running over Boland, but pinning and trapping him underneath as it lurched down the road. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacy Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at rock and roll nightmares books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me. And until next time.